listening to a Drishti Point podcast. Please visit our website for more inspiring interviews on yoga, spirituality, and wellness. When you change your mind, you change your brain. And by changing your brain, you can change your life. Great teachers like the Buddha, Jesus, Moses, and Muhammad were all born with brains that were built essentially like anyone else's. But they were able to change their brains in ways that change the world. And science is now revealing how the flow of thoughts actually sculpts the brain and that it's possible to strengthen positive brain states. Weaving together the classical teachings of Buddhism and the revolutionary findings of neuroscience, we have a guest with us today who wrote a book called The Buddha's Brain, The Practical Neuroscience of Happiness, Love and Wisdom, which presents an unprecedented intersection of psychology, neurology and contemplative practice. So here with us today is Rick Hansen, author of The Buddha's Brain. He's a neuropsychologist and author of several books, including Mother Nature, A Mother's Guide to Health in Body, Mind and Intimate Relationships, The Buddha's Brain, and his latest book, Just One Thing, Developing a Buddha Brain, One Simple Practice at a Time. Welcome, Rick. Thank you, Farah. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'd like to start off by talking about neuroplasticity because I know it is quite a profound finding that the brain can change itself and I'd like you to explain what it is and the implications of this. Sure. Well, the basic idea is that when we learn anything, whether it's a toddler learning to walk instead of crawl or an adult learning a new way to use their iPhone or something like that, uh, or simply just remembering what you had for breakfast the other day, uh, something has to change in the brain for that learning to occur. And so uh, the brain is the organ that changes its structure based on our experiences. This is not a new idea. It's been understood in science that this is necessary and true uh, for well over a century. But what's the breakthrough uh, in the last 10 or 20 years um, has to do with the details of all this and an appreciation for how radically uh, the brain actually alters its structure based on lived experience. For example, people who routinely meditate, which probably is of interest to people uh, who might be listening here, uh, if people routinely meditate, and this is probably true for other forms of you know, wholesome practice of one kind or another, uh, build up layers of brain tissue. Literally, they build up new connections between neurons called synapses. They get more blood flow to busy regions. They build a muscle in key parts of the brain, specifically uh, the parts of the brain um, in the prefrontal regions just behind the forehead that are involved in the executive control of attention and, and impulse control and self-regulation, because that's what you do when you meditate to some extent. And also parts of the brain in a region called the insula. Those two get built up. Uh, and that's a part of the brain that's very involved in self-awareness and tuning into your body and tuning into your, into your deep feelings as well as tuning into the emotions of others. So the takeaway point here to build on a traditional saying that the mind takes its shape from what it rests upon for better or worse over time, well, the modern update would be that your brain takes its shape from what you rest your mind upon. In other words, if you routinely focus on self-doubt, self-criticism, resentment, negativity, well, your brain will take a certain 
in kind of shape, in effect. On the other hand, if you rest your mind repeatedly on experiences of self-worth or gratitude or loving kindness for others, your brain will, your brain will take a more positive shape over time. Mm-hmm. So if we could see the Buddha's brain, um, what would mm-hmm. it look like and how would it look different? You mentioned the, the frontal area, um, but is there any yeah. other way that it would look different? That's a very interesting question. And, of course, people speculate about it. It's hard to get people who are really, really realized uh, in any one of the world's great traditions uh, into an MRI. It's pretty difficult. <laughs> uh, and an MRI itself is a fairly claustrophobic situation. Um, fundamentally, from what we know of modern meditators, and the great bulk, by the way, of the, of the research on the impact of spiritual practice on the brain has been done on TM practitioners, transcendental meditation. So that's, mm-hmm. in effect, the kind of Hindu tradition absorption practice, or has been done on mindfulness meditators uh, in more of the Buddhist tradition, both in terms of open awareness practices and absorption practices. Uh, obviously, the Christian traditions, Judaic tradition, uh, Muslim, as well as the shamanic indigenous traditions around the world, as well as secular traditions, have a contemplative wing to them. But I'm just saying that most of the research has been done uh, in TM or Buddhist practices. Mm-hmm. So from that research, what might, be, what might we guess? Well, we would guess, first of all, that the Buddha, a Buddhist brain or a modern saint's brain today would look very much like um, the brain of an ordinary person in a scanner. In other words, the growth structures of the brain are not changed. Uh, The parts of the brain that control breathing and the heart beating of the heart or, you know, managing basic emotional reactions or processing information or language or locating yourself in space or helping you, you know, put the spoonful of potatoes in your mouth instead of your ear and so forth. (laughs) Those are not going to be different, right, in the brain of a realized person. But what I think we could expect to see is we would see a quieting of the reactive emotional circuitry of the brain uh, in the subcortical region, specifically the amygdala, which is kind of an alarm bell in the brain that's typically focused around threat or fear. I think mm-hmm. also we would see uh, layers of cortex compared to an ordinary person in parts of the brain that are involved with um, top-down control of attention, tuning into oneself. Um, I think we see greater activation of the motor systems of the brain that respond to the suffering of others, in other words, to the cultivation of compassion and loving kindness and, you know, the bodhisattva inclination, if you will. And I think from other research, we would see more of what's called gamma wave behavior, which has to do with the synchronization of very fast um, oscillations of, of huge coalitions of neurons, millions if not billions of synapses all firing together 30 to 80 times a second in the range of gamma waves. That's what that's called. Because people who have a long-term contemplative practice, at least in the Buddhist tradition that's been studied, have more of this gamma wave behavior, which is associated with more sense of integration, uh, more of a sense of unification of consciousness, as well as, happily, you know, a faster response to learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the last thing I would say, based on some interesting new research, is that uh, if you think about sort of two ways of operating in life, uh, we need to do both of them. One is you could call it the doing mode, where we're planning or doing tasks or 
thinking about the future, thinking about the past, and there's fairly a, there's a fairly strong sense of self, me, mm-hmm. myself, and I, my precious, you know, when we're caught <laughs> up in the doing mode. But then there's this other mode where we're just being with our experience. We're in a state of open, peaceful, spacious awareness. We're very much in the present. We're in a concrete moment. We're not abstracting. We're not conceptualizing. We're not we're not worrying about anything. There's and there's a little sense of self. Well, when we're in the doing mode, which I think we're all familiar with, um, that tends to activate networks in the midline of the brain, right at the very tip top of the the head, from the forehead toward the kind of the middle of the brain. Whereas when you're in the more of the being mode, like you're just in the present, right? You're just mm-hmm. kind of hanging out. You're you're at rest. Pretty luscious, nice state of mind. Um, well, you tend to activate networks on the sides of your brain, especially the right side for the roughly 90% of the population that is either right-handed or half of all left-handed or half or so of all left-handed people. And those networks on the right side, the lateral networks, are associated with open, spacious awareness. I'm just being here now. So I would suspect that our saint, if you will, or if we could put it, uh, the historical Buddha in a time machine, uh, or any of the major realized people along with him, we might see much greater activation of these lateral, especially right-sided networks, compared to this midline pressure got to get it done, me, myself, and I activation. Mm-hmm. That's speculation, but it's plausible speculation here. <laughs> now, what's so profound about your book is that um, we have the capacity to Hello? develop. Yes, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, good. Now, one of the, uh, in the book, you write specifically about virtue, mindfulness, and wisdom, and you correlate them to brain function functions like regulation, learning, and selection. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate mm-hmm. on this. Yeah. Oh, sure. Just a fine. And, uh, well, in Buddhism, which is the contemplative tradition that I'm most trained in, right? Mm-hmm. I respect the other traditions in the world, obviously. Uh, but Buddhism is just the one I know. So I'll speak of it, not to push it, but just it's the one I know about. Also, it is the one that's probably had the greatest intersection with West, with Western science because both Buddhism and Western science, you know, generally focus on just the facts, as it were. They have an empirical orientation, generally speaking, and they tend to be pragmatic. It's not about taking anything on faith alone. So Mm -hmm. all that said, in Buddhism, it is said that uh, there are three pillars of practice, um, uh, sila, samadhi, and panya, that's uh, in Pali or Sanskrit, and what that really translates to is loosely translated virtue, concentration or mindfulness, and wisdom. And it's interesting that you find those three pillars of practice in many other definitions of the good life. If you really boil down to it, mm-hmm. you know, virtue and love, one. Two, awareness, mental training, you know, meditation, even concentration into non-ordinary states of absorbed consciousness absorption states, um, and then last, wisdom, you know, recognizing what helps and what hurts, uh, what's the greater happiness compared to a lesser one. Well, interestingly, in the nervous system, those three values that we see in many, many traditions around the world named one way or another, sometimes named in Christian, in certain Christian contemplative traditions, a professor, a friend of mine has told me, uh, you know, in words very similar to virtue, mindfulness, and wisdom, Anyway, those 
values map pretty closely to three fundamental functions of the nervous system, namely, namely regulation, right? We have mm-hmm. the nervous system regulates the whole body, and the nervous system is highly focused on regulating itself. That maps pretty well to virtue. Um, mindfulness would map very well to learning because the preeminent way to help your own nervous system learn is to get control of your attention and rest it you know, where it's useful and pull it away from what's not useful because that's what helps. That really increases uh, with experience-dependent neuroplasticity. The brain hyper-builds structure for what we pay attention to, which makes sense because that's what animals needed to learn from, you know, what they're n- noticing, what right. they're paying attention to. And then last, uh, the nervous system is continually selecting. It's making choices. It's turning left instead of right. It's, you know, it's picking carrots and uh, it's taking carrots and avoiding sticks. I mean, it's continually choosing. And that really is, I think, in a deep and, and far-reaching way, the ultimate nature of wisdom. Uh, it's to uh, incline toward that, toward that which is most wholesome and to relinquish or abandon that which is not. Mm-hmm. Which would, in some, some other terms, could be called discernment. For wisdom. That's right, for discernment. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think one thing that's nice about um, appreciating the brain is that without being reductionistic about it, we can start to recognize that while there are many, many... many human nature, there's only one human brain. There's only one human DNA, if you will. And when you realize that uh, with regard to whatever is not transcendental, as it were, outside the frame of, the, of nature, broadly defined, uh, which includes a lot of crazy stuff like quarks and weird things, you know, really intense black holes, who knows what. But anyway, other than what's transcendental, other than that, whatever the ancient Hindu yogis were doing, whatever the modern Sufi mystics are doing, you know, whatever the people are doing, uh, you know, at Hollyhock or, or Esalen or in the upper reaches of human potential, they're working with the same brain. So even though the way they talk about what they're doing is, of course, going to be culturally conditioned and quite different from one person to another or one tradition to another, at the end of the day, they're still working with the same fundamental organ of the body. And therefore, they're grappling with its limitations and its possibilities. So no wonder uh, that when you kind of peel the onion back in a lot of different approaches or traditions, you find in many ways that the commonalities, the similarities at a deep level really outnumber the differences. So that a lot of spiritual traditions and wisdom traditions are just trying to um, tap the highest potential and capacity of the human brain. I think that's right, and I, I think on the one hand, as many have pointed out these days, it's important to be careful about this and not to just sort of mush everything together, you know, in one blender of cosmic consciousness and everything's the same, right? No, there are significant differences and, and strengths and I think weaknesses as well of every one of the traditions. On the other hand, the truth is, again, whatever is not transcendental uh, outside the natural frame, we're working with the brain. That's the bottom line. The final common pathway of all the causes streaming through us to make this moment of consciousness, this experience of living, here and now, for better or worse, that final common pathway travels right through the three pounds of tofu-like tissue um, between your ears. 
And I think one of the one of the opportunities in the 21st century, as we learn more and more about this amazing organ, is that we're going to be able to use that knowledge for human welfare, including um, accelerating or enriching spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. Now let's get a little bit into spiritual practice because obviously your book is very practical. It off it offers tips about things that people can do, and especially your latest book, I imagine, even more so. <laughs> But tell us a little bit about mm-hmm. what you call the brain's negativity bias, um, which you describe as Velcro for bad experiences and like Teflon for pot of sure. positive ones. And what are some practical tips that people can use in their everyday life to overcome this bias? Sure. Well, first, Farah, uh, on my end at least, there's a lot of act. So uh, I don't know if you want to re-record your question, but I think I got it myself. So would you like me to proceed? Yes, please. Okay. So first off, uh, my book, Buddhist Brain, is actually mostly not about spiritual practice. It's actually mostly about uh, dealing with uh, the stresses and hassles and losses and sorrows and hurts of everyday life uh, and applying the wisdom of the, you know, the contemplative traditions informed by modern neuroscience and psychology, applying that to everyday issues. But that said, as someone who is interested in spiritual practice and, um, you know, for himself as well as for others, you know, sure, I'm very happy to apply, you know, what's in that book to um, spiritual life. So to your question specifically about the negativity bias, this is the idea that uh, the brain is like velcro for negative experiences, but Teflon for positive ones. And what I mean by that is that, as many studies show, as we evolved, our animal ancestors had to get carrots and avoid sticks. But if you fail to get a carrot today, well, you'll have a chance at one tomorrow. But if you fail to avoid that stick today, whap, no more carrots forever. In other words, if you fail to avoid that predator or that natural hazard or that social aggression inside your primate band or early you know, human band, if you fail to avoid that threat, whap, you know, you're in trouble. So threats, negative experiences, and, and difficult situations tend to have more urgency and impact from a pure survival standpoint, uh, which is the engine of biological evolution. So, for example, if 10 things happen in your relationship today with somebody important to you, and five are pleasant, four are neutral, and one was unpleasant, which one are you likely to think about as you're falling asleep? Probably the unpleasant unpleasant one. one. Uh, That's exactly right. Uh, If you... If we hear information about someone we don't know and we hear 10 things and one of them is scandalous, well, what's the one we're going to remember? Mm-hmm. It's a scandalous one. That's why negative information tends to dom- negative advertising tends to dominate political advertising. Um, as they say in journalism, if it bleeds, it leads. In other words, that's the story you talk about at the top of the news hour. Uh, it's a plane crash or it's a, you know, just terrible murder or the celebrity scandal. Uh, you know, the fact that someone cured cancer that day, you know, that's like the fourth or fifth item, right, in the news show or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and this affects us in lots of ways. One of the primary ways it affects us is that the positive experiences, which are the primary source of inner strength, that 
we all need to get through life, inner strengths such as resilience, but also inner strengths such as um, positive emotions or spiritual attainments. I mean, we, we develop these inner strengths through having experiences of them. The problem is the brain is very inefficient at converting these positive experiences of inner strengths to neural structure. In other words, your brain is very good at learning from the bad, but it's bad at learning from the good. That's why uh, the, one of the major focuses, really, in my book, Buddha's Brain, and then in Just One Thing, is on this practice of taking in the good. In other words, tricking your brain to convert these momentary mental states to enduring valuable neural traits. And you do that by just simply staying with the experience, 10, 20, 30 seconds in a row. Also, as you, if you can, while helping it become as, as intense as possible. You're not clinging to the positive experience. You're not turning away from pain. You're not suppressing your own pain. But rather, you're using momentary, ordinary positive experiences to build up strength inside. There's a famous saying in neuroscience, neurons that fire together, wire together. So by staying with, a, with an enjoyable, everyday positive experience for 10, 20, 30 seconds in a row, you're getting a lot of neurons firing together so they can start wiring together and build up these inner strengths and virtues and mindfulness and wisdom inside you. So do you mean when those experiences are actually happening and after they happen to let your mind dwell on the experience of it? Yes, you know, to go back to the saying I quoted at the beginning, the mind takes its shape from what it rests upon. What rests upon? The problem is that the mind is vulnerable to um, taking its shape from negative material that mm -hmm. it rests upon. And you can just think about how often that people are, you know, me included, grumbling away or ruminating about something that's anxiety-provoking or rehashing again and again and again a conversation with somebody or beating themselves up because they're, they don't have the love that they want or the success that they want. And, um, you know, if you, you've got a brain that's very, it's spongy, you know, it absorbs things. So in effect, metaphorically speaking, and it's hyper spongy for the negative because that's what mother nature wants. Our stone age primate mammalian and ancient ancestors to really learn from. Mm -hmm. So when you're having a positive experience, especially a high-value positive experience, for example, let's suppose in your yoga practice or your personal growth altogether or your healing, you've recognized that it's really useful for you to feel cared about by other people or it's really useful for you to feel at peace and safe and strong, or it's useful to you to feel a sense of enoughness rather than grasping or chasing after uh, rewards or pleasant experiences of various kinds. So now you have a high-value experience. Well, when you are just already experiencing it or when you are skillfully doing things to create it, and there's a place for that, I think, then you have an opportunity, 10, 20 seconds at a time, to cultivate to really enjoy that positive experience. And that's what I'm talking about here. Do, does the same effect happen on the brain when we remember our positive experiences? That's a great question. Um, the bottom line uh, in terms of the brain is, I'm going to use a kind of 
slightly mechanistic language, please forgive me, but it, you have to activate a mental state to learn from it. In other words, the brain is like an old-fashioned cassette recorder or these days a VCR or a DVR. In other words, um, the brain is not like an iPod. To build structure in the brain, you have to have an experience. Uh, you record the quote-unquote song by playing it. You've got to play the song to record it, you know, like in the old days. You can't just plug it into your brain, like hooking up your iPod or your smartphone to your computer and then just dragging the, the file over, as it were. You've actually got to play the song. You have to sustain the experience to turn it into neural structure. And um, so if you remember something, it's one thing to just remember conceptually, like, oh, yeah, I remember a time I went rock climbing. Okay, because I do. On the other hand, if I reuse that recollection to start activating a very rich and luscious experience, then I have the opportunity to install that activated mental state into my brain as a neural trait. And, uh, yeah, that's why it's really funny, even though I'm talking about it kind of conceptually and, you know, intellectually and technically and all that, this practice of taking the good is deeply intimate with your own body. You, the richer the experience, the more that it's in the body, the, the more luscious it is, the more enjoyable it is, the more neural structure you're going to be building. And my own experience of being a longtime psychotherapist as well as a meditation teacher is that it's been humbling to appreciate how many of the positive moments, the positive states that have been activated in the minds of people, including myself when doing yoga, for example, uh, how often those positive mental states have no lasting value. As far as the brain's concerned, they were pleasant in the moment, but they may as well never have happened because they, have, they didn't turn into structure. They washed through the brain like water through a sieve, while because of the negativity bias, negative experiences get caught every time. And this is, from, I think, the fundamental weakness in uh, most paths of practice, most trainings, most psychotherapies, uh, most mindfulness trainings, most you know human resources training, most forms of child rearing or parenting. It's that the brain is a very slow learner from the positive experiences that ironically are the primary source of the good stuff inside us that we want to cultivate and build up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you I can see how, for example, meditating on kindness not as an intellectual meditation but as a full experience would start to build that structure in the brain is that right that's yeah that's right if you're having a sustained experience past a kind of threshold and long enough in other words and the threshold varies from the person having to do with the person and the experience and so forth but basically it's at least a few seconds if not longer so for example uh, again, you, you have a long-time practice. I do. A lot of people listening here probably do too. If you're, let's say, resting in your meditation and you're accessing a really strong sense of peace, let's say, or loving kindness, or you're even having some kind of a realization, how long do you stay with that experience straight? How many seconds in a row are you resting in a state of peace or compassion or realization and it's humbling and startling to realize that usually it's never more than a few seconds well that's the problem if it's less than a few seconds 
you're not building much structure. Okay, something's probably sifting in. And what I'm saying, by the way, is inexact because neuroscience is a baby science. It's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we just can't bring the kind of precision to bear that we might bring to bear on, you know, some sort of precise analysis of chemical reactions, you know, and that are very mechanistic. It's a very, you know, complex dynamic process. But the basics are true. If spiritual practice is, in a fundamental sense, a kind of learning, right? It's a kind of cultivation. It's a deepening of wisdom. It's learning that is an unlearning of the negative and a learning of the positive. And it's a learning that's an uncovering of the radiant, beautiful truth that was always already there. Okay, but however you slice it, within the natural frame, other than whatever is transcendental, it involves changing the brain. And lots and lots of studies show that the brain gets changed very quickly by negative experiences, but very slowly from positive ones. So as a practical matter, if you're having that useful experience on the cushion or on the yoga mat or just riding your bicycle or whatever it is, or talking with a friend, hey, be on your own side. Help yourself stay with it 10, 20, 30 seconds in a row. Any single time you do this usually will not uh, change your life. Once in a while there will be those extraordinary moments where you really want to help them land. You know, mm -hmm. you really, really want to register them deeply, and they change you forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've had those moments. I bet you've had them. I bet other I bet listeners have had them. But mostly... It's the law of little things. You know, it's lots of little negatives that get us to a bad place, and it's lots of little positives that get us to a better one. And if you do the practice I'm describing, just, you know, being a friend to yourself and not wasting, but instead harvesting these um, positive experiences, most of which are quite mild. They're everyday experiences. You know, in the 0 to 10 intensity scale, they're the 1s and 2s and 3s of everyday life. But if you help yourself have uh, one of these sink in, you know, a handful of times every day, right? Half a minute at a time, half a dozen times a day, that's less than five minutes a day. Within a few days, you'll notice a difference, I bet you. Mm -hmm. And then within a few weeks, a substantial difference, partly because you're going to get a bonus effect. Because in addition to the particular thing, whatever it is, the particular content that you've woven into your brain, you're also going to get an implicit bonus benefit of being on your own side, treating yourself like you matter, training attention, because this is a kind of absorption practice for 10, 20, or 30 seconds in a row. And also, you're going to be active rather than passive, all of which, you know, uh, is very helpful to us. And then finally, there is some research that's beginning to indicate that over time, you can actually sensitize your brain to the positive, so that uh, much as your brain can be sensitized to the negative, so that it learns ever more rapidly, alas, from negative experiences, it's changed more and more easily for the worse by negative experiences. It looks like you can also sensitize your brain through repeatedly taking in the good so that it becomes increasingly rapidly changed for the better by positive experiences, which is a real bonus benefit. Mm -hmm. Now, what you just described, is that what is the main practice of your latest book, Just One Thing? Oh, thank you. Uh, that book has a collection of practices, 52 of them, uh, conveniently one per week. If you want to use it in that way, you don't have to. Uh, the, I'd say three or so of the practices in, in that particular book, just one thing, are very uh, linked to this idea of taking, pardon me, taking in the good. Um, and I hope that 
it's not a too shameless plug to say that my next book that's coming out in October 2013 called Hardwiring Happiness is all about taking in the good. And in an ultimate sense, especially for people, the kind of people who are listening to this program, I'm very interested in exploring uh, what it actually means to truly uh, alter the basis for the craving that leads to suffering and harm. And I'm using the term craving as it is used in Buddhism as a very broad umbrella term for resisting or grasping or clinging, uh, craving broadly defined. Cravings d- driven uh, by deficits, by feelings of deficit or disturbance inside. And if we help ourselves 10,000 times over, you know, 10 or 20 seconds at a time, to experience that our fundamental needs are met, so that increasingly we have this sense inside that's unconditional. It's not based on external conditions. Well, if we gradually grow this inside us, then over time uh, we're able to go through life with no fun, no innate basis for any kind of craving. And through extension, if you do some deep practice about this that I talk about in that book that's coming out in October, um, you can really get to a place where there's very little sense of craving. There are subtleties that remain, and you're not enlightened. But wow, this easing of, you know, fear and frustration and heartache—the uh, three great fuels for the fires of, you know, craving and therefore suffering. When you defuel, when you take the fuel away from those fires, uh, it's a lot easier to go into very profound spiritual practice. Now, is this new book, is it both science as well as practice? Oh, yeah, it's very deeply based on the science. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, that's right. You know, I'd love to hear a little bit about your own personal experience. One thing that I think Buddhism is very... Oh, sure. Um, has a very beautiful tradition on is the direct experience of the teachings. And I know you've been meditating since 1974. So can you tell us what effect meditation and spiritual practice has had on your own life and your own sense of happiness and well-being? Mm, that's a great question. Well, like many people, um, I was motivated to practice uh, the practices of happiness by my unhappiness and uh, so I was you know I was a real seeker and um, I guess I would describe the benefits for me as, as honestly the, 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 the known benefits I, I doubt I'll have anything very novel maybe not even useful uh, to say uh, for me there was a, the benefit of a general calming and easing uh, more profoundly uh, uh, there was a you know a gradual disidentification from the contents of my own mind. And by the way, I should add that knowing a little bit about the arbitrariness and the gooey messiness of the neural substrates of consciousness and how you know vast coalitions of synapses come together to form the neural basis of the sound of a bell or the feeling of a single breath or uh, you know, getting irritated with my wife, let's say, or feeling frustrated in traffic, uh, that when you realize that what is really producing, at least within the natural frame, that which is non-transcendental, you know, that which is producing this experience is just 
this messy, arbitrary, kind of stupid, you know, neural unfolding. Wow. <laughs> it's really hard to take your own attitude seriously, you know? It's like, oh, here I am again with my niggers in a twist. But then you realize, dude, what's going on deep down is a bunch of synapses are, you know, synchronizing with each other and wahoo. And then they're going to desynchronize soon enough and you're going to move on. You know, it's really hard to take your stuff so seriously. So that's aided disidentification, you know? And then I think, like, again, a lot of people, uh, deep practice, often on retreats, uh, so there can be a real giving over to the practice, and then often uh, bringing it home, you know, and br- you know, bringing it into everyday life. Um, there is a growing sense for me of um, what I call emptying out into allness, you know, a, a sense of both... Uh, foamy insubstantiality of my own phenomenology, my own experiencing moment to moment to moment to moment, but also that takes you into a kind of intuition of the um, the oneness of everything, uh, including linking out into nature and, you know, materiality very broadly defined, you know, the universe, at least as we imagine it, which then can, if you're up for it, you know, uh, help you have more of an intuition of the kind of... Uh, you know, the unconditioned, or for me, honestly, a sense of the divine that mm-hmm. infuses the nature of all things. Uh, not, for me at least, uh, so much the divine as, as it was conceptualized in my casually Christian upbringing as a young Methodist uh, in Southern California, but uh, more of a Dante sense, you know, as um, the divine in some sense, or the transcendental as a kind of benevolent um consciousness woven into the actual underlying nature of reality. Uh, you know, my own practice is taking me more and more in this direction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was quite an honest answer to your question. So uh, uh, for what it's worth, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, I do want to come back to your book, Hardwiring Happiness. It's very exciting that it's coming out in the fall. And what's your biggest aspiration for this book and what it will inspire in the minds of the readers? Well, to be really, again, frank, and it's an aspiration that's found in the afterword to the book, um, my aspiration is what I call a billion brains on green. And what I mean by that is, so if you'll bear with me, and your listeners will as well, I'm going to give you a little bit of a framework that for me has been extremely useful. So can mm-hmm. I do it for Absolutely. I'll just kind of lay it out quickly. Yes, please. Okay, and you can think of this as a guide to practice, so to... to to really simplify a lot of complicated stuff, but I think useful simplifications really are useful. But anyway, um, bottom line, the brain evolved in three stages, uh, like the floors of a house built from the bottom up, brainstem, subcortex, and cortex, loosely linked to the reptilian, mammalian, and primate human stages of evolution, and linked to growing capacities to fulfill our three core needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection, which are now served today by three broad motivational regulatory systems in the mind-brain working together that avoid harms in terms of our safety needs, that approach rewards in terms of our satisfaction needs, and attach to others in terms of our connection needs. So you kind of get the basic structure I'm doing here? Very fascinating. Down if, okay. And um, 
this, this links to, in effect, avoiding, approaching, and attaching as three ongoing dynamic processes mm-hmm. that map pretty well to uh, two of the three poisons in Buddhism, hatred and greed. Hatred maps well to the avoiding harm system. Greed maps well to the approaching reward system. I think implicit in much of his own teachings, the Buddha did acknowledge the attaching to others system, but he didn't really flesh it out, I think, as much as uh, we now, 2,500 years later, uh, want to flesh it out and can flesh it out. So I think there are fundamentally, if you will, not three poisons, I think there are four, or as the Buddha originally taught, there are three, and I think four, basic fuels for the fires of craving and therefore suffering and harm, namely fear, which goes to the avoiding harm system, what the Buddha called hatred, I'm using the word fear as a large umbrella term, frustration, which goes to the approaching reward system, and heartache, which goes to the attaching to other system. Okay, so here you have my structure, right? Mm-hmm. Three core systems, avoiding, uh, approaching, and attaching. And the brain has essentially two settings, two modes, for going about meeting those needs. When we are having an experience inside of our needs being basically or sufficiently met, the brain defaults to its responsive mode or what I would call the green zone, where the body refuels and repairs itself and the mind is colored in three broad terms linked to these three needs. The mind is broadly colored by peace, contentment, and love in terms of avoiding, approaching, and attaching. Mm -hmm. This is easier to see on the printed page, but I hope people can kind of get this. That's good. And Mother Nature wants animals, including sophisticated ones like ourselves, to spend most of our time in the green zone because that is how you conserve energy. It's a homeostatic equilibrium condition, and it feels rewarding because peace, contentment, and love feel rewarding because it's a good place to be, whether you're a modern human today or an early human or a monkey or a zebra uh, or a little rat, you know, scampering around the field. All right. Now, the bad news is that the brain has a second setting. It's reactive mode which it goes into very quickly when we experience that one or more of our core needs is not met. That activates the fight-or-flight stress response system, especially the sympathetic wing of the nervous system. A bunch of stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline start moving through the body, and um, the body uh, starts burning resources faster than it can replenish them. Long-term building projects are put on hold. For example, the immune system gets weaker when we're in the reactive mode. And in three broad um, umbrella terms, the mind is colored by fear, frustration, and heartache in terms of avoiding, approaching, and attaching. Okay, so to sum up to my vision for the world, we have no choice about the brainstem, subcortex, and, and cortex. I don't care if you're a Buddha. You've got a brainstem. You've got a subcortex. You've got a cortex. We also have no choice about our broad needs to, for safety, satisfaction, and connection. Um, we have no choice about the broad-scale motivational systems of avoiding, approaching, and attaching. Our only choice is which mode are we in, which setting is operating predominantly as we go through life or deal with challenges. Is it the green, as it were, responsive mode or the red, quote-unquote, reactive mode. And if you look beyond your own life 
you know, an immediate circumstance in your relationships and how you feel stressed when you're, you know, at work or, or dealing with a lot or settling a sibling quarrel or something like that. But if you move beyond that and you look at the world, you look at the politics uh, in the world these days, you look at ethnic tensions, you look at longstanding conflicts such as Northern Ireland historically, um, uh, racial issues, let's say, in America where I live, um, you look at the Middle East or you look at... Uh, the world at large, you see a, a real tendency to, that for the reactive mode to drive these problems, or not just in terms of us-them conflicts, but kind of a greedy gorging on the planet's very scarce resources and a thoughtless dumping of carbon into the atmosphere day after day after day, tons after tons after tons. Well, in many ways, you could argue that in terms of the brain's contribution to the problems in the world, which is not the only source of obviously the world's problems, right? But in terms of uh, the brain's contributions to the problems in the world today, um, the primary source of the brain's contributions to the problems in the world today is its red reactive setting. So, so my own hope is that, that um, without being grandiose about it, to do my little bit alongside lots of other good folks to help people increasingly have a deep and strong sense of their core needs having been met so they can rest mainly in the green zone, in the responsive mode of their own brain, as they deal with the hard challenges of life today. And so that's my fantasy. That's my notion of a billion brains on green. At some point, <laughs> if that happened, if we had a billion brains, you know, that spent most minutes of most days in the responsive mode, pick a number. 10 million, 100 million, a billion, at some point there'd be a tipping point yes. uh, in human history. And that's my hope, if not for to be seen in my own life, at least in the life of my children or their children. Well, I think that is such a beautiful vision that you have, and I'm so grateful that you were able to share that with us and with our listeners mm, so that you. we can uh, participate and contribute to that. Thank you. You know, and to be clear, it's not either or. You know, we need to do do what we can or bring fresh water to people around the world or affordable health care or educate girls, especially in third world countries, what have you. But meanwhile, um, you, you take a look around. You know, the world is, uh, from in material terms, it's a lot better than it was a century ago. It's far from perfect today, of course, but it's certainly better than a century ago, let alone a thousand years ago. And there's still a tremendous amount of red zone reactivity. You know, mm -hmm. we need to change conditions outside ourselves in the world, but we also need to change conditions inside ourselves, inside, you know, our own mind-brain system. And that's where what you do uh, is really important and, and other people in terms of supporting inner practice. And that's also where we tend to have the most influence, you know. Our capacity to affect uh, the world outside, including other people, is pretty limited. But we usually have a lot of capacity. Often we don't use it, but we have a lot of capacity, you know, to work inside ourselves, um, to get on our own side, and every day, you know, nudge our own mind-brain system to a better place, bit mm -hmm. by bit. As they say in Tibet, if you take care of the minutes, the years will take care of themselves. Yes, very true. It's been so wonderful to speak with you and listen to you um, talk about all, all the research you've done and your own experience clearly mm. comes through your own insight and I know that you'll be in Vancouver in September is that right? 
That's exactly right. I'm going to be doing, a, I think, so the opportunity to say this, for West Coast Dharma, yes. a very great organization, uh, very accessible and, and warm-hearted and clean and great. So West Coast Dharma, I'm going to do a two-day workshop for them. Um, and then I'm going to do a, a lecture at Banyan Books. So I want to give a good shout-out to for independent booksellers, um, not yet gobbled up by the corporate <laughs> megalopolis, you know, what have you. And Banyan Books, as you know, well know, you know, good place, long tradition there. So I'll be there as well. And I think the date, what's the date? September 20th and 20, uh, 20th at Banyan Books and 21st and 22nd doing a workshop for West Coast Dharma. Wonderful. Well, we'll be sure to include that in our post. And uh, hopefully I'll have the chance to meet you when you come to Vancouver. Oh, that would be a great pleasure, Farah, and I wish everybody well. And by the way, uh, if I could also say this, I have a lot of freely offered resources. Almost all of what I do is freely offered. Uh, you got to spend some money on Amazon or somewhere else. At Banyan Books, there you are, to get one of my books <laughs> or borrow it from a library. But other than that, most of what I do is free. It's freely offered. And so if you go to my website, rickhanson.net, rickhanson.net, um, there's a ton of freely offered materials, uh, talks I've done, articles, slide sets from many, many workshops I've given, uh, links to other resources and so forth, and you're, it's all freely offered. You can use it however you like. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for um, all that you've said today, and we look forward to publishing this on our website and broadcasting it through the airwaves of Vancouver, and hopefully we'll have a chance to meet again and dialogue again about this. Fantastic. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Drishti Point. We dedicate our efforts to the health and happiness of our listeners and for the health and happiness of all living beings.